Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the great coyote debate. Three more coyote attacks in Stanley Park this week, including an attack on a four-year-old kid. Nearly 50 attacks in the park this year, according to the official count, could be higher than that with unreported attacks. What should be done about it now? Demands growing to take direct action to remove the coyotes from the park permanently. That's where we start this morning, and we've assembled a great panel for you. Bill Thielman, political columnist, he is behind a petition to remove the coyotes from the park. Bill, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Also, Michael Howie on the line. Michael is the Director of Advocacy and Communications for the Fur Bearers, and I'm pleased to welcome him. Michael, thank you for doing this. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. Okay, Michael, let me go to you first. We had a statement this week from the ministry, uh, the provincial government, saying that they intend to take direct control of the situation and not ruling out lethal action to remove the coyotes from the park. Your thoughts? Well, we're disappointed, Mike. I think ultimately what we're looking at here is a situation that for 10 months has gone without a great deal of interventions and mitigations that were available, that were offered by the fur bears as well as other experts across the country, and we didn't see those things happen. So the basics, the most basics of things, like updating the signs, um, enforcing the feeding, and again, you, you can look at the news just in the last few days, and I believe it was Vancouver Sun, has someone just walking past a barricade uh, on a trail closure. We heard about the mother of the young boy who was bitten saying she had no idea. She arrived at that park. There were no signs when she got there. There was no information as she traveled through. And even if she had gone online to try and research this, the city of Vancouver, the Stanley Park site, and the Parks Board site have no information about this up until this week. They don't have any information on trail closures or anything. It has been a massive failure of communication and the ability to use tools that would have prevented this situation from continuing to but escalate. Do you, but do you think, Michael, now that there have been close to 50 official attacks, that enough is enough and it's time to remove the coyotes from the park using lethal methods or, or not? Or you think they should be left there? Well, I think that we are going to continue to follow the advice of experts in the field on this matter, and I can't speak for them. I can say which coyotes, because they've already removed several, and that yeah. didn't make a difference, largely because they don't always know who's involved, and they have not done the work. And by they, I mean the collective agencies involved to really crack down on this issue. And okay. if okay. we remove coyotes tomorrow, the issues will still remain. Okay, Bill Thielman. 
I think that all of Michael's points are good ones to start with. I don't disagree with any of those. I think uh, there's been a lack of leadership at the park board level, the conservation uh, officer service level, the city council level, and clearly there hasn't been enough done, so it, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, where I differ, though, is I think that the, the obvious answer is that you have to call all the coyotes that are in Stanley Park, and, and Michael is right. You cannot tell the difference between a coyote that's wandering around unafraid of humans and a coyote that's wandering around unafraid of humans and bites people. Um, the ones that are there all appear to be habituated to humans, and that's unfortunate. But I, I did want to point out, this is not their natural home. They came to Vancouver and to Stanley Park in the 1980s. They're not part of the ecosystem. They're not endangered. They're an invasive species, and unfortunately they have to go, and then we have to keep them out. Michael. So this is a really unfortunate situation, but one of the issues, too, is, and I think Bill's a little confused here, they're not an invasive species. They are indigenous to North America and migrated. In fact, there was a scientist in the news this week directly disputing this claim that they're invasive, and it doesn't help the conversation. Further, I think it shows a lack of understanding of how ecosystems work. Bill, I gave you a moment to talk. I will now speak. Thank you. Because you're, you're, what ends up happening... You're not, you're not making sense, though. That's the problem. Gu- guys, guys. I'm not making sense. Okay, so Bill, I mean, I, Mike, I know you've got a button. If you could mute Bill for me so I can actually have a, a point, it would be great. Okay, gentlemen, but, I'll just let me just step in for a second. I'll, I'll just insist that you don't speak over each other, okay? So, Michael, you continue to make your point, and then, Bill, you can respond. Go ahead, Michael. Thank you. So I think it does show a lack of understanding of how an ecosystem works. Stanley Park is not an island that is devoid of nature. If you go in and remove all of the coyotes tomorrow, there will be more coyotes. And in order to keep coyotes out, you will have to go in every day with traps, with lethal firearms to kill wildlife. Because coyotes are here to stay, despite the fact that Bill doesn't understand ecology and the migration of species over time. it, it, It is the reality of the situation. Bill. This is just ridiculous. Honestly, Mike, uh, <laughs> Michael has making all sorts of claims that they're, they're now, now suddenly because they existed somewhere else in North America. Grizzly bears are not native to Vancouver. If they came here, would we say, well, that's it, they're here to stay? Uh, mountain lions, uh, cougars, it, it's just a, a, an absolutely absurd argument. The fact of the matter is that uh, these groups and the animal rights activists don't like the idea of taking lethal action, which is necessary to protect children and adults and pets from a dangerous wild animal that doesn't belong in the city and doesn't belong in the park. And, and so there's no way around that. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't like the idea that we have to do this, but we do. And, and, if we, and you're right, we do have to keep them out of the park after that. Okay, what do, you, what do you say to Michael's point, Bill, that once you call all the coyotes, that more coyotes will just move in? Well, this is just a theory that basically says, let's just throw up our hands and give the, the park over the coyotes. I haven't seen the scientific proof on this one. I think that if, uh, if 20 or 30 coyotes that are currently in the park are euthanized, I don't know that a bunch of other coyotes will be in a hurry to go into the Bermuda Triangle for coyotes uh, if they have any sense at all. But if, you know, we have to keep, uh, we have to take the measures that Michael mentioned at first I agree with, but if they come back in, they have to be taken out again. Michael, what, what uh, evidence is there that if you take them out, more will just come in? It is repeated through history for the last 300 years in North America. Um, there are numerous studies. You can find them at thefurbears.com, coyotewatchcanada.com, or just by using Google. The reality is there are cities across North America that are doing this without these problems. And as Bill rightfully points out, a lot of other measures haven't been taken yet. So to skip over all of those to an extreme action that ecologists, people who have studied this for decades, 
say will not be a long-term solution is if at, at the least irresponsible and at the most atrocious. Okay, now, got- we need to be focused on right. why things haven't happened yet. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the Coyotes in Stanley Park, Bill Thielman, Michael Howie are my guests. Let's uh, squeeze in some phone calls here. Ryan in Vancouver, hi. Hey, Mike. I was just saying, I, I find it precious that city people find it difficult, uh, the decision what to do here. It's obvious. You need to call a certain percentage of that population. Like any animal, they teach the younger uh, animals where to eat, what to be afraid of, when to run, when not to run. If you call a certain portion of that population... Over time, it's taken 40 years for attacks. Over time, the attacks will diminish. You'll have them in the park, but they, they'll be afraid of humans at that time. So it's, okay. it's obvious. Like, okay, thank you for the call. Michael, what do you think of that, about that? Because I was wondering if there's any sort of learned behavior going on here with the, with the strange behavior by these coyotes, but your thoughts? We absolutely know there is a learned behavior, and they are learning it from the humans who are luring them. They are people going into the park with the intent of getting close to coyotes and putting down food so they whatever. We also know people are going in and leaving literal bags of food, bags of food for animals. And as I've said repeatedly, if we don't address those issues, nothing else is going to matter because it will repeat. And I have those studies Bill refused to believe exist, which includes uh, talking about cold not being effective, Sachs 2005, Goldfarb 2016, Mini AL 2016, Newsom AL 2017, which were published in journals such as Science, Australasian Science, and Journal of Mammalogy. So, okay, Bill. For Bill, should he choose to look it up? Bill Thielman. Well, there's there's calls and hunting for pelts all over the United States where they have coyote problems. Keep the population down. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of coyotes. They are not an endangered species, and it, you know it's too bad. But I, I don't disagree again with some of the solutions. But uh, Ryan was absolutely right. The the all the coyotes there in Stanley Park now are habituated to humans. And um, also, I have to say, Mike, and you can ask this question of yourself. I haven't. I, I heard. I have heard these arguments that it's all to do to feeding, and I think that would be shameful if, if it is. But I haven't seen any evidence that that's happened. I haven't seen any selfies with coyotes. I haven't seen anybody caught. I haven't seen any coyotes caught or people caught feeding coyotes so far. Uh, so oh man! I'd like to see it, Michael. You're laughing. What sure. do you want to say? Well, I mean, Bill is in this beautiful position of, I need everyone to prove everything to me, but what I say requires no proof. And it's, it, it is anti-scientific, is what it is. It is okay. denying reality. Do you, have, do you have any photos of people park. feeding coyotes, Michael? Go to the park, Bill, and have a look around. We have well, I just want a photo. I don't need to go to the park if you say it's, uh, it's all there. Just post a photo on so Twitter right now. See it for yourself, Bill. You, no, you, no, you post need... a photo on Twitter now of someone feeding a coyote okay, in Stanley Bill, Park because you're claiming it's what true. What I need you to do is prove Where's your evidence? to me. Where's prove your evidence? to me that all of the coyotes are involved in this. Prove to me that your solution will not result in dogs being trapped. I, no, no, no. I didn't say they were all involved, used. Michael. Okay, I let's go. You said you have to remove all of them. Okay, yes, you do have to remove all of them because you can't tell which ones might or might not have been involved. It's enough okay. involved. Yes, you can. Let me let me squeeze in another call, guys. Anthony on the line in Vancouver. Anthony, go ahead. Hey, how's it going? Um, Good. Uh, I was just wondering, is there maybe? I know it's probably a, mo- a more expensive way, but it might make both parties happy. Instead of calling them, is there a way we can maybe tranquilize them, put them to sleep, and then maybe have them removed? and maybe release the wild somewhere else, like up north or interior or something? Michael Howie. 
So two things. One, relocation is not a long-term solution because you're just moving an issue from one spot to another, which also creates issues in the new ecosystem by introducing new animals. Further, as I have said repeatedly, it still does not resolve the chronic issues that have led to this. And until those are addressed, it does not matter because we are seeing other animals now engaging this way. We have reports of a raccoon engaging with people and and pets. Let's go to Laura. This issue will keep growing. Laura Lee in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, thank you. Uh, Firstly, I don't think anyone should post a picture on Twitter. That's silly because that will only encourage other people to do foolish acts like attracting animals. You've got to figure out what went wrong. Getting rid of them all isn't going to change it. They've got to start being proactive and change things. Put in the proper cans. Actually ticket people. It's not all the animals' fault. Bill Tillman. doing what they do. Well, there are fines available. They should find them. I totally agree with Michael. That there should be large fines. People should be prosecuted for this if that's what's happening. But, I, you know, everyone says it's happening, and nobody has given up any evidence so far that I've seen. Let's go to Jimmy on the line in Surrey. Hi, Jimmy. How ridiculous these guys are trying to look for proof. This is not a case about humans and people. But what I tell you is, where's the hue and cry... I wonder how people react if these, were, these coyotes were attacking people's pets. Then people will be up in arms. Because they're little children, nobody really cares. Where's all the moms and dads? How come they're not incensed right now? Like well, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of people upset and angry about it, and, and that's, why, that's why we're talking about it. Michael? Well, I, I am upset and angry about yeah. it, too, because we know what has led to this issue, and it is, again, we have seen this for 10 months. We have been telling the Parks yeah. Board about these issues, and they have not taken action on them. And while Bill is supporting one action, he also needs to acknowledge and publicly state, hey, Parks Board, why haven't you done these things? Well, I What's think going he, on he, that has prevented them? I think he has said that, but Bill, would you argue that you know, if you think about it, sort of mathematical equation. If you have attack coyote attacks on humans, you remove the coyotes. There's no more attacks. I mean, is that the way you look at it? No, absolutely. And this is an unusual situation. We have had had coyotes in urban settings in this area in Vancouver without without uh, a number of attacks on on children uh, that we've seen here mike and people and joggers and everybody else and the seriousness of the attacks so something has clearly gone wrong and that's why i say that there really is no choice but at this stage to uh, to call to euthanize the coyotes that are in the park now and as i said i i think all the measures that michael has suggested uh, he's right the, the park board and others have shown a lack of leadership that's one of the reasons why i felt compelled to start this petition and start making noise about it because nobody else was doing anything and I, you know, I credit the for bears for uh, raising the issue previously when maybe there was a chance it could have been dealt with earlier, but now it's too late, unfortunately. Rick and Port Moody, hi. Oh, hi, gentlemen. You know what? There's been a lot of good points uh, from from both uh, Bill and Mark. It, it is Mark, I think. Um, Michael, it's okay. Go ahead. The, rea- the reality is is that um, there is a solution. The, the problem coyotes will show themselves again because it's it's not the entire bands in in, in Stanley Park. Go out with the hunters, like I've said numbers of times, in the evening and in, in the afternoon. Those coyotes that are showing habits that are not um, what what's just expected of a coyote, um, take them out. The rest of the band, you know, do that for a two-week period. 
and and step away and see what what's going on. You get Michael, rid of, you will get rid of the problem, coyotes, and you're not necessarily culling the entire entire group from uh, from Stanley Park. Okay, and, Michael. Michael, what do you say to that? Like a selective call of the coyotes are that are behaving aggressively. Your thoughts? I think that if there is going to be selective removal, it needs to be extraordinarily cautious because, again, how are they going to do it? We haven't been able to keep people out of that park, period. There has been an unwillingness or an inability, which means you're then going to either have trappers going in with leg hold traps, which I have seen a dog break all of their teeth on in about 30 to 60 seconds, or they're going to go in with high-powered rifles. So there's a whole lot of questions that need to be asked about this. Okay. this blanket, we just need a coal, we just need a coal, ignores all Mike, of that nuance and ignores all of that science. Bill, you got 20 seconds here to wrap it up here. Close the park, send in dogs, send in conservation officers with whatever high-powered rifles or pistols they need, and get all of the coyotes done and get it over with so we can reopen okay. the park and make it safe for children. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Delta variant and the strain and pressures on frontline healthcare workers right now. What's it like to work in a hospital right now with the case counts uh, continuing to rise? Yesterday, BC reported 801 new cases of COVID-19, six more deaths, 199 people in hospital with the disease, 116 of them in intensive care. It's a particularly tough situation in some parts of the province, notably uh, the north of British Columbia, where the public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has brought in some new restrictions to respond to it. Uh, lots of stress, lots of strain on frontline healthcare workers right now. Let's talk about that with my guest, Dr. Matthew Chow, president of the Doctors of BC, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Dr. Chow, thank you for coming on today. Good morning. What's it like right now? What are you hearing from your people on the front lines in the system as we continue to see we experience this wave of the Delta variant, eight hundred another 800 cases yesterday, a lot of people in hospital? Well, I mean, it's been a very uh, emotional week for all of us in healthcare. I mean, we yeah. suffered the gut punch, you know, the other day of these massive protests in front of the hospitals, you know, people calling for the, the provincial health officer to be locked up and just a, a number of extreme behaviors that were just beyond the pale. And that you juxtapose that with the reality, which is that our province's hospitals, particularly in the interior and in the north, are under extraordinary pressure right now, um, wow. just being flooded with, with cases of unvaccinated, and I really want to emphasize that, unvaccinated people with COVID-19 flooding into the hospitals, occupying you know, ICU beds, and causing the delay of a lot of surgeries. You know, people waiting for cancer surgery, for example, um, having to wait even longer uh, due to the influx of COVID-19 patients. Yeah, what's a, uh, what, in terms of the strain on the hospital system right now, what can you say about that in terms of the number of, you know, the percentage of beds that are being taken up by COVID cases? And um, is that, how critical a problem is that right now? Well, it's a, uh, it's it's critical enough of a problem that we, we we're seeing uh, we're seeing procedures getting cancelled and moved. Uh, yeah. We're seeing delays because uh, you know, post-operative spaces that that are needed for for patients to recover after surgery are being occupied by people that that need therapy for for COVID nineteen. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you had the wildfires, you know, yeah. which displaced a lot of folks and put a lot of pressure on the healthcare system, particularly in the interior. And you've got um, staffing shortages, 
because after 18 months, you know, we're human beings in healthcare. We're not superhumans. And so people are just, uh, we're getting tired, you know, and people are burning out. People are taking leave. People are calling in sick, you know, as as they should when they are, you know, experiencing, you know, this severe duress uh, and, 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 and taking time for themselves. Uh, but all of that is just compounding on, on the pressures faced uh, in our system right now. Yeah, is that absenteeism, like people taking time off or they're getting sick themselves, burned out? I hear a lot from nurses and other healthcare workers about just the stress of the job right now, and people are experiencing that burnout, which is understandable. What kind of strain does that put on these on the system right now and its ability to cope and manage? Yeah, well, I, I want to emphasize, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't blame the, the workers at all. Right. You know, like when sure. people are calling in sick, you know, pe- pe- people are doing it because uh, they're, they're often at the end of their rope. Uh, they're, they're, just, uh, they're just so tired, you know, emotionally, physically. You know, it's a, it's a tough job wearing full, full-scale PPE, protective equipment all day, every day. You know, breathing through, you know, respirator masks, through face shields. It's, it's, it's really rough for people. Uh, even on the best of days, and just having to do that continuously for 18 months is just that much more, much much more of a challenge. Um, and so, yeah, it, it it creates you know stress on the system when you know you'll have units where half the staff you know have called in called in sick at a time, and so the remaining staff have to cover for the work of of the other half that are that are off, and then they get burned out, and then you just it just becomes a really vicious cycle. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the saddest part about a lot of this is that it's 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 preventable. This is this is actually preventable because if folks are vaccinated, they don't land in hospital the way that folks that are unvaccinated do. Speaking to Dr. Matthew Chow, president of Doctors of BC, you mentioned the the protests that we saw outside of several BC hospitals this week, and I know that was tough for a lot of healthcare workers. Uh, some of whom were actually harassed as they went into the hospital. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, for people who are on the front lines of the healthcare system, doctors, nurses, to look out the window and, and see a huge crowds of people protesting outside, what kind of impact has that had? <laughs> I mean, shocking, appalling, um, discouraging, demoralizing. You know, I could use so many words to describe what what people felt. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm still trying to explain to my eight year old actually what happened. You know, because she was asking, you know, why why are people protesting? And I'm I'm really actually struggling to explain to her what it was about. You know, because I I tried to say, well, you know, people were talking about freedom, but that didn't make sense to her because her her grandpa's a Canadian Army veteran, and the first thing he did was get his vaccine as soon as he was eligible. So it couldn't have been about freedom. And then, you know, people were chanting about locking up the provincial health officer. And that didn't make sense to her either, because Dr. Henry is actually one of her heroes. And so that, you know, so, you know, I go down the list of reasons, and, and it's not making a lot of sense. And, and, and I think that's because it wasn't particularly, it was senseless. It really was senseless. And I think that's why so many people are reeling right now. Yeah, speaking of Dr. Henry, yeah, we did see that moment uh, at some of these protests where people were, chanting that locker up uh, directed at Dr. Henry and Bonnie Henry was actually asked about this yesterday her reaction and her thoughts when when she heard that I want I want to play this for you and then get your reaction here on the other side Dr. Chow so here is here's Dr. Bonnie Henry here commenting on that locker up chant that we heard at these protests have a listen 
Well, you know, what can I say? It, it, it makes me um, very sad that um, people will do that to others who, uh, you know, I, watching the ambulance try to get through made me very upset and sad. And, you know, uh, taking it out on me is something that I have been living with, as, as some of you know, for, for some time. What upsets me is uh, the amount of vitriol and, and anger that has been directed at, at um, others in public health and at my team and my staff, and that's inexcusable and very upsetting. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday. Dr. Matthew Chow, what do you think of that? I'm just so full of sadness when I hear hear that. Um, you know, we have such a gracious leader in, in Dr. Henry, you know, that she's, you know, in, in the comments that I saw too, that, you know, she was thinking about her team and how this has been affecting her team. And, and, and she said that she was sort of just used to it by now. I, I don't know that anybody can ever get used to constant hate and vitriol. I mean, my, my inbox, <laughs> you know, even on my Twitter, my di- direct messages is full of people, you know, sending me expletive Latin stuff you know, accusing me of being a baby killer and, 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 and a liar and all sorts of just horrible things that I, I will never, ever show to my kids. Uh, and that's, that's, just, that's just terrible. It's, it's hard. You know, every, every single person in the system, whether they're a cleaner, whether they're a nurse, whether they're a doctor, whether they're a public health official, we're all just trying to do our best to save lives, protect society, and get us to the other end of this. You know, all this hate and vitriol is just simply uncalled for. Uh, and yeah. and if if anything, it actually just impacts us and burns us out even more, and then makes it even harder for us to do our jobs, and and makes it, you know, even a longer and more difficult path to get to the other side of this pandemic. Yeah. Some of the people who organized um, these protests across a lot of these protests happened across Canada and other countries uh, this week, and there was a an attempt made to say that this was actually organized by healthcare workers. You know, there's this group called Canadian Frontline Nurses, which was started by a couple of nurses in Ontario who who were spreading a lot of conspiracy theories about COVID and have been investigated by their own regulatory and licensing body in Ontario. But I mean, you know, the people that we saw at these rallies, the people we saw speaking at the rallies, I don't think were, of course, anywhere near reflecting frontline healthcare workers. But this is the way it was kind of spun or communicated that this was the reason it was held in front of hospitals because it was in solidarity supposedly with healthcare workers who agree with them about the vaccine passport for example what do you think of that like you know what what does that say to you what how do you react to that i mean are are there i mean there certainly are some healthcare workers who are opposed to mandatory vaccination and vaccine passports right well i yeah, I simply cannot believe that that frontline healthcare workers or supposed frontline healthcare workers led this because all the frontline healthcare workers I know are working in the hospital. They're helping the patients. They're driving that ambulance that's trying to get down, you know, 12th Avenue and get to the emergency department. Um, they're, they're people like my partner who, when, when this pandemic started, she's a healthcare worker, didn't have enough protective equipment. So we actually had to scrounge around our home and find her you know, things like safety goggles so that she could be safe at work and not get COVID-19. You know, those people are, are the frontline healthcare workers. You know, our public health officials who, who have been fighting this since even before COVID-19 landed on Canada's shores, 
you know, a lot of people forget that they've, they've been actually working at this even longer than March of 2020 because they, they were making preparations before then. So uh, those are the frontline healthcare workers. You know, the folks yeah. that showed up at this protest, I, you know, I, I just can't believe that any of them actually are frontline. They, they wouldn't undermine their colleagues. They wouldn't undermine our healthcare system if they were truly frontline. Dr. Chow, thank you for what you're doing, and I, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Well, that's no problem at all. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the Delta variant and its impact on healthcare workers, you heard my conversation there with Dr. Matthew Chow, president of the Doctors of BC. Let's talk to another doctor on the front lines here. Dr. David Forrest is an infectious disease doctor at Nanaimo General Hospital. Uh, there was a protest outside of that hospital this week. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Dr. Forrest, thank you for coming on today. Hi, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Uh, Dr. Forrest, we saw a large protest outside of Nanaimo General this week, and I, 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 don't be- I know you were not at the hospital at the time that that protest happened, but I imagine you've discussed with some of your colleagues what that was like. What are you hearing from people at the hospital, of what, what it was like to go through that with a big crowd outside? Well, I think, for one thing, people are astonished. Um, frankly, I think that, from my perspective, I, I'm outraged. I, I think this is completely unacceptable behavior. Um, you know, the people that were protesting blocked access to the hospital. Uh, they were loud, swearing, honking horns right outside of our palliative care ward where people are, are dying. Uh, I think this is absolutely despicable behavior and uh, i know they committed an assault on one of our nursing staff Uh, for them to attack the very people who are providing care uh, in this pandemic is just absolutely outrageous to me yeah the island health authority uh, released a statement uh, saying that members of their team were verbally abused as they came and left work during these protests and in at least one case, a healthcare team member was physically assaulted, as as you mentioned. Uh, that's that is shocking and, and outrageous to hear something like that. What kind of impact does that have on the morale of people on the front lines? Well, as you've heard, I think many times, I think healthcare workers are generally exhausted. Not just those who've been taking care of COVID patients, but the impact that this has had on resource utilization and workload for all of us who are providing care. And I think that's particularly true for, um, not just for physicians, but really true for non-physician staff, and and especially in those taking care of COVID, the nursing staff and respiratory therapists and others. Um, I mean, they provide 90% of the bedside care for these patients. And, it's been it's this is demoralizing um we've been through this and we continue to have quite a number of covid positive patients in the hospital many of whom are unvaccinated and yeah. for this sort of uh, a protest uh, it seemingly protesting against us is just uh, to me is unbelievable do you think there should be any kind of regulations to prevent something like this from happening again i mean i remember in years past when we saw protests outside of abortion clinics in British Columbia, for example, the government brought in what was known as a bubble zone law that, that made it illegal to protest outside. Do you think maybe that they should, the government should consider a similar law 
for around protests outside of a hospital in order to prevent this from happening again? Well, certainly, I think that there needs to be, um, I think we already have laws in place, uh, but there needs to be, um, there needs to be clarity that, that protests, if they occur, cannot block access to the hospital, cannot infringe on um, the, the, the care of patients and should not have, should not be any contact with the actual healthcare workers that are working at the hospital. So, yeah, I think there may need to be. Ultimately, we have to recognize that in a free and democratic society, you have the right to protest. Right. And it's what's astonishing here is that the people, uh, the anti-vaxxers, have, have characterized this as an infringement, vaccination as an infringement on their rights. In fact, what they did is they infringed the rights of healthcare workers to life, liberty, and security under Section 7 of the Charter. So they were, they're actually infringing other people's rights, and that's wrong. And okay. so that does need to be regulated. Dr. Forrest, I want to thank you for your time today and your comments, and thank you for uh, everything you're doing on the front lines of the healthcare system, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot for coming on. All right, thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. We got the uh, final long weekend of summer coming up here with the Labor Day weekend, and then we're back to reality for BC Kids next week. Yeah, it's back to school, and I got one son in the public school system, and so this one hits close to home for me. Uh, we got the Delta virus uh, variant surging, and as schools get back down into session, uh, some people wondering if we're doing enough to keep kids and staff and teachers safe in our schools. The mask mandate is back in BC schools uh, with some exceptions. Uh, some people wanted to see the safety measures go further than that. Have a listen to this here now. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry commenting on this and she was asked again like she's been asked repeatedly why not bring in some tougher safety requirements in BC schools to protect kids, staff, students, uh, teachers. Here's what she had to say. Have a listen. So we know from, from last year that the measures we had in place in schools meant that there was very little transmission in, in school settings. And we're seeing that, uh, you know, that's why we put in place the same measures that we had pretty much in place last year. The focus on ventilation over the summer, the importance of masking, the importance of not having crowding and, and uh, people gathering together, particularly indoors, and uh, wearing masks in those settings. So we don't expect to see an explosion of cases. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there, not expecting to see an explosion of cases in the school system uh, when kids are back in class next week. Let's discuss now with my guest, Mike McCullough. Mike is an advocate for parents and kids in the school system. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Mike, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks, Mike. Long time, first time. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Uh, let's talk about uh, back to school. What are your thoughts and concerns here now as kids get back to class? Well, first of all, you know, Dr. Bonnie Henry, she also didn't expect for there to be an explosion of cases after July 1st when the masking regulations were released or relaxed a little bit either. But here we are, and we're into the 800-a-day range now. So this is uh, starting to get a little bit vexing for parents. And uh, with regard to back-to-school in particular, we have fewer protections uh, in spite of what the doctor says. Uh, while we have this more transmissible variant, Delta, going around, uh, we have no mask orders for grades K to 3, merely right. recommendations there. Educators are merely strongly suggested to be vaccinated rather than required. 
and we don't really have any f uh, transparency on what air ventilation and filtration improvements have been done in the province. So to me as a father, uh, this means that my grade 2 kid could go into a class where only some of the kids are wearing cloth masks, some wearing N95, some without masks, with a teacher who may have an ideological bent, who may have picked up some misinfo, disinfo from Facebook, in full occupancy classrooms with who knows what kind of ventilation updates, aside from perhaps filter swap jobs, which, by the way, are supposed to be done in every season anyway. So that doesn't really reassure me very much as a parent. Okay, so you think there should be mandatory masks for every kid from kindergarten up, is that right? Like right now, from K to grade 3, as you mentioned, it's just suggested that kids, kids wear masks, not required. For kids in grade 3 and up, then it is required, right? You think every kid should be required to have the mask on? Yeah, I do think that, and I know that the uh, health officer, Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry, pardon me, says that you know some children have trouble with wearing a mask. Well, yeah. I'd like to suggest that you know these are children who are in schools, and if we t trust our teacher to teach us all kinds of life skills, from mathematics to literacy to all other, all kinds of other things, I'm sure that there can be uh, methods of helping these children into learning how to properly mask as well. All right. When we take a look at outbreaks of the virus in schools, Mike, uh, you heard Dr. Bonnie Henry in that clip say that she doesn't expect any big outbreaks in schools, and uh, she seems to be quite proud of the record that in BC schools for uh, outbreaks in classes, which were fairly rare, I would say, in, in the last school year. Uh, when you take a look at the vaccination rate, right, like if you look in... Vancouver, for example, where right now we're around 85% vaccinated, at least one shot, uh, over 90% in the, in the capital region in, on, in Victoria. I imagine that teachers would be very highly represented in that vaccinated group, like I think the very, very vast majority of teachers probably vaccinated. Yeah. Is, is, that not another, is that not another layer of protection that will be there you know, next week that wasn't there before? Sure, that's a great point, but let's take that onto a more like class-by-class -class level, okay? So if we have 90%, let's take the upper figure and to apply that to classes. So 9 out of 10 teachers have been vaccinated, let's say. Well, that's, you know, if there are 30 classes in a school, that's three teachers out of that school who've chosen not to get vaccinated. So I have to play eeny, meeny, miny, mo with my child's health at that point and hope that the teacher that my child is placed with has chosen to do the right thing. Right. So, do you think enough? do you think there be there should be mandatory vaccination for teachers? Absolutely. I think if you're a public facing person, that uh, you should have to be vaccinated. This is a privilege to work with the public, is it not? We have the same type of thing with uh, licensing for vehicles. Like uh, you reduce the risk of everybody else's uh, risk on the road. If you get a bit of driver education, you go out there and you you get licensed. Well, we should have the same sort of uh, application for where people work. If you don't like yeah. it, then there are plenty of other fields that don't require it. Okay, speaking of Mike McCullough, he's an advocate for parents and kids in the school system about back to school next week. What about a uh, remote learning option for parents who are worried? Maybe they got an immune-compromised immune kid or there's Im someone immune-compromised at home. They're, they still continue to be worried about the virus. We have seen in the past there were learn-at-home options for people to kids to stay home and learn online. Is that still the case? Like, are there still those remote learning uh, options available? 
No, as far as I understand from our school district, we're in Vancouver, School District 39, and it looks like they're full speed ahead with uh, in-person, and they've suggested that if you don't want to show up in-person, that you can sign up for the Vancouver Learning Network uh, or another uh, distributed learning provider. But to me, this is kind of unacceptable because getting back into the school system can be a real challenge and that basically leaves us up to lottery of whether or not the school has been filled by the time we decide to return. Um, So we were hoping to see some sort of a wait-and-see approach similar to last year where we could hit the pause button, if you will, just given especially that uh, Pfizer in particular has been rumored to be months, perhaps weeks away from having vaccination approved for the next age group down the list. I think it's five to 11-year-olds. So we're just really hoping that, you know, the rest of the school cohort could be vaccinated by the time we return or at least have the option and our child then would have a chance to uh, get those controlled antigens into their body rather than taking a chance with the virus. Let me ask you about the notification letters that were going out to parents when there was a COVID exposure at his school. And like I mentioned, I had a son in in public school. He's in high school. And we were pretty fortunate at our son's school. There wasn't a lot of COVID cases, but there were some. And I remember last year getting a letter or two saying that there was an exposure at your your son's school. Um. Bonnie Henry has now announced that they are not going to send out those school-wide letters anymore. I want to get your thoughts on that. Let me play a clip here for you of Dr. Henry on this point about these notification letters uh, going out to parents. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. We will not be doing the the, uh, notifications to school if there's been a single exposure. They'll be doing an assessment, as we do for every communicable disease, and every individual who's at risk will be notified. So it will be, uh, we've heard very clearly from uh, people that that the majority of people felt that uh, the school-based letters were more anxiety-provoking than helpful. Okay, so she says that these le- these school-wide letters that were being sent out last year were causing people anxiety to receive them, and that's one of the reasons they're not sending them out anymore. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of patronizing, really, to, to suggest that more information is worse somehow. Uh, we should be able to know with full transparency what's going on in our communities, and I believe that those letters were helpful in, in uh, the cases of knowing, okay, well, hey, it's here, you know, we chose to sit it out last year and stay home with our child, but I can imagine for somebody who is in the school system, in person, that it would be actually helpful to know, oh, there was something going on. And, you know, instead, uh, what it looks like is we're just going to rely on even more of a grapevine approach to finding out what's going on. I even heard of some teachers who were not notified of children in their own classroom last year having uh, exposures, and the notification letters that went out on mass were... The, f- the first hint that they had, and they would later find out through the grapevine, as I say, uh, with the other parents uh, talking that, you know, their child or, or a child in the classroom did. So uh, we need to know more about what's going on. This is a, a, a very transmissible virus. Uh, the the uh, BC CDC is still pegging the uh, response on the droplet theory of transmission rather than the widely accepted scientific consensus of airborne transmission, which is across the board, even though there is some language in our uh, guidance that says droplets of varying size, but it's still based droplet theory. So we have our contact tracers uh, going around 
and they're going to be informing people of who's a close contact based on the droplet theory of transmission and contact theories right. of transmission, where I don't think that this is uh, quite appropriate when this is an airborne virus, and really the entire classroom should probably be notified once uh, somebody mm. in, the, in that class has been uh, exposed. All right, welcome back to the show, talking about back to school with my guest, Mike McCullough. Lots of phone calls here. Let's get right to them. Frank and Richmond. Hey, Frank. How are you doing today, guys? Listen, um, those letters that came out last year and that woman who ran that Facebook page in North Van did nothing but increase people's anxiety. They talked about exposures, which all of a sudden translated into transmissions in everybody's eyes. And I'm sorry, but your guest is doing the same thing. It's a chicken little situation. Listen, Dr. Bonnie is one of the world's leading experts in this. She's gotten us this far. We need to continue to trust her and believe in her. And if she says it's not required, then it just is not required. Okay, thanks for the call. Mike, what do you think of that? Well, I'd say that, as Dr. Colin Furness at the University of Toronto says, that, uh, what does he say, that uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So we don't actually know whether there were many school transmissions, and and even the BC's uh, different... Uh, health authorities that have done studies on this, they say in their own methodology that they don't actually know the true number of cases and therefore transmissions in school because mostly kids present as asymptomatic. So we don't know. And even down the line, asymptomatic people can develop long-haul symptoms. So this is a huge issue. Okay, I remember when we got a couple of those letters last year from our kids' school, I remember thinking, like, it is a little worrisome to get this letter, but I also thought that it was kind of helpful uh, just as a reminder to my son to make sure he's following all the rules and safety protocols. So I didn't really mind the letters myself, but, you know, not everybody has the same reaction to receiving one of those letters. Kelly in Surrey. Hi, Kelly. Hi there. Hi. Um, so my kids are in grade two and four, and they said that their teachers helped them get um, their jackets on or teach them how to put their jackets on or change their shoes to go outside and when they play, um, get ready for the bad weather outside. So if the teachers can teach the children how to put their jackets on and shoes, and usually they learn. They can teach them how to wear a mask, and we'd be surprised how many kids can learn and want to wear a mask. My kids said that most of their friends are wanting to wear masks to school, so I don't know why the minority is um, saying that they shouldn't have it. And then the other thing is, um, if I was a parent and I had a kid that had special needs for medical reasons, I couldn't wear a mask. I would be advocating that all the other kids in the class please have a mask on to protect one of their um, their classmates. Okay, thank you very much for the call. Well, what is the official reason, Mike, for no masks in K-3? to As Dr. Bonnie Henry constantly, uh, as far as I know, she's always saying that it's the, that children do have trouble with masks. I think that's basically the entire reason, and then oh, okay. that's basically it. So I say here, here, there to Kelly. Okay, Richard in Chilliwack. Hi, Richard. So, Richard, uh, you there? Go ahead. Yeah, so my son is going into grade four, and I told the principal, he's not wearing a mask, period. And if he has to, then I'm pulling all three of my kids out. And then he said, fine, he doesn't have to wear a mask. He doesn't How, have why, is he, why is he not going to wear the mask? Because I don't want him to. Lack of oxygen, bacteria growing in the mask. Sorry. Okay, and, they, and the school is allowing that? Yep. So you're, you're, also, I, have, I have a question for you, Mike. Yeah. So this virus has never been physically isolated. Why aren't you people investigating that? Who's who's making you push this fake COVID? Okay, okay, Richard, the COVID's not fake. And I encourage you to, I don't know, maybe do a little bit more research. I don't know what you're reading. Uh, and just for the sake of you and your family, um, I would encourage you not to 
not to believe that the virus is fake. It's not fake. Greg in Surrey. Hi, Greg. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. We've got to, we only got a minute left. Go ahead. I'm a, okay, I'm a double va- I've already been double vaccinated, I guess. And what my question is, is it not in the Constitution that says they cannot make you uh, be vaccinated if you don't want to be and also prove that you go anywhere, nobody can make you uh, prove that you've been vaccinated? I'm they not, can't. I'm, an, I'm, not an anti- I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means. It's just I'm I, just I understand. The they can't. I understand. They can't make you get vaccinated, and they're not going to force anyone to get vaccinated. With regard to the vaccine card, and only in order to go into a restaurant or movie theater, for example, which is coming very soon here, I expect that will likely be challenged in some form or another in in front of uh, in front of a judge, and I suspect it will be upheld uh, because of a public health emergency. That's my read of it. We will see. Next week is going to be huge on this file as we get more details in the vaccine card. Mike, thank you for coming on today to, to, on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Welcome back to the show. Well, I'm happy to report that Janice in Richmond uh, was the winner there of the trip for two on Harbor Air Seaplanes. Congratulations, Janice. And before the show ends today, we will be drawing for the grand prize here. Courtesy of Harbor Air Seaplanes, the trip for four to Victoria and a chance for a behind-the-scenes tour of the legislature here with myself and with our friend Keith Baldry. We're throwing in lunch at the ledge, too. So before the end of the show today, we'll announce that big winner of our Harbor Air Seaplanes contest this week. A lot of thanks to Harbor Air here for doing this. We've had a lot of fun with it this week, and congratulations to Janice in Richmond. Okay, let's talk about the sad news uh, that we received I guess a little over a week ago now for fans of the Rolling Stones and dare I say all fans of music and rock and roll and I include myself there a big fan of the Rolling Stones so I was very here sad to hear about the passing of Charlie Watts the great drummer of the Rolling Stones they called him the backbone of the group and you heard a little bit of his drumming there as we came in the great Wembley Whammer as Mick Jagger nicknamed him and charlie watts passed away on august 24th at the age of 80 and the tributes continue to flow in and i've read a lot about charlie watts here over the last week after his sudden passing and i gotta say one of the uh the most delightful things i read about charlie watts was a little canadian perspective on him uh, written by my next guest E.K. Fulton, and uh, Kay is one of uh, the great magazine writers in Canada. She has had a long and wonderful career in journalism. She was born in uh, Victoria, B.C., and she wrote for the Toronto Star, the Montreal Gazette, uh, many other newspapers and publications, and I'm very honored to welcome her. Hi, Kay. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for coming on. We got a bit of a scratchy connection there with you. I hope that's going to be okay. I'm sorry, I'm in the tool shed in the uh, woods of Muskoka. <laughs> okay, um, actually, you, you sound fine, actually, so I think we're going to be good, Kay. Okay. okay. Kay, I love the article, the piece that you wrote, Remembering Charlie Watts, that uh, a lot of people may have read on Facebook. Let's go back to March 5th, 1977, when you were a young reporter for the Toronto Star, and you got the call uh, to and that you ended up meeting Charlie Watts. How did this happen? Well, um, 
Thank you for that, by the way, uh, for the compliment. Uh, yes, I was uh, in the Star newsroom, and we started to hear reports that Margaret Trudeau had been spotted with the uh, Rolling Stones at the Elma Combo Spadina, on Spadina. Yeah. Um, that's a club, and they were just getting tuned up to go on tour, and they were trying it out at the Elma Combo. Um, Maggie was there, which was interesting uh, on its own because she, at the time, was the wife of the Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Right. Right. And on this particular night, it happened to be the Trudeau's sixth wedding anniversary. <laughs> uh, so the fact the fact that she was uh, uh, partying it up at the El Macombo, and then uh, we had heard somewhere in Toronto at a hotel um, into the wee hours with the band. Yes. So the newsroom was emptied, as you can imagine. <laughs> and we were sent out to try and find her. Um, I chose the hotel across the street, which had just been built um, two years before. And I sat in the lobby and watched the traffic go through to the elevators. And um, kind of out of place were these burly security guards uh, that um, every time they went into the elevator and somebody else tried to get in, those guests were shooed away. Mm. And um, each time the elevator went up to the 37th floor, figured, hey, that's probably where it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I walked over and flashed a laminated tag at the security guard and said, I'm with hotel security. <laughs> and I rode the elevator up to the 37th floor. And I think in everybody, just about everybody can... Imagine what that floor looked like after a night with the Rolling Stones partying. Um, there was nobody in it, though. It, it was completely empty, and I heard the sound of a television and walked down the corridor following the sound to a room, peeked around the corner, and there was a lone figure sitting on the bed at the end of the bed watching television. And... I am a big fan of the Rolling Stones um, as well, right back to the 60s. And I, in particular, uh, I love Charlie Watts. Mm -hmm. um, didn't know much about him, but I loved the way he played and the way his beat was just behind Keith's guitar uh, for that unique sound. I recognized him right away. And... Um, uh, I asked him what he was, he, he had said, um, he looked over and he said, um, uh, if you're looking for somebody, uh, they've all left. Mm. And um, I, looking at Charlie Watts in a black turtleneck and a great pair of dress pants and a Rolex, you know, impeccable. Yes. Um, at the end of that bed, and I said, uh, they've all left, they will, well, what you? What are you doing? And he was watching. He was watching soaps, American soaps, yeah. as the world turns. Um, that's an indelible memory in my head. Is uh, when he said, "If you padded the mattress," and he he said, "Come and join me. Feel free to join me if you'd like." Which, of course, I did. <laughs> um, and we watched as the world turns. 
on the television and during commercials, we chatted. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, when I told him I was a reporter and looking for Maggie and Mick or Maggie and Keith yeah. or Maggie and Ronnie, we didn't know which one. Um, he said they all flew to New York. Um, that Maggie had said she wanted to go to the studio 54. Um, and that he thought she was with Mick, but maybe he was with, she was with Ronnie. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I said, well, okay, this is news to me. So, um, and I thought I should call my, the desk at the star, which, yeah. uh, he handed me a phone <laughs> and said, so politely, he said, he said, here, use my phone. Um, and call your paper. So I did. And, uh, <laughs> and I told the editor where I was, what I'd found. And, uh, Charlie was sitting there listening. And I said to the editor, I'm with Charlie Watts. Um, they've all flown to New York. And, uh, the editor said, you're with Charlie who? <laughs> I said, I'm with Charlie. Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stone drummer. And I had winked at Charlie, and Charlie winked back at me and grinned. Uh, <laughs> and the the, uh, the editor said, well, if, you, if Mick and Maggie aren't there, then you may as well go home because your shift is over. Right. You know, so I hung up the phone and told that to Charlie Watts, and he said, you're welcome to stay. And uh, finish the soaps if you want. So we sat there and watched the soaps, um, which is um, something that you'd never forget, right? Now, we just we um, just have a couple of minutes left, Kay. What did you guys talk about? Because I didn't go home, and I spent uh, several hours before he had to catch a plane, I learned about his passion, jazz. Yes. Um, he told me about Charlie Parker and about Jelly Roll Martin. He told me about Shirley, whom he married in 1964. He told me that how much he enjoyed playing with and off Keith Richards, mm. and that he had spent a lot of his life, um, which he marveled at, uh, looking at, at Mick's derriere on stage. <laughs> but the best thing he told me, and the, the reason that it was so so imprinted in my head is that what I'd wondered since the sixties was when you look at Charlie Watts, you see his eyes go off into the distance. Mm. He turns his head and he looks at that middle distance. I asked him the question I'd wanted to ask since the sixties, which is where do you go when you look off there? And his reply, which was so beautiful was, um, uh, Sometimes I go into the song, but sometimes, my favorite times, I go where the drums are leading me. Mm. And that is Charlie Watts. And that's his brilliance and why some 50, 60 years later, we're talking about him. Okay, what a wonderful story and what a wonderful memory for you. And I'm so glad you were able to tell it so well. And uh, I was a big fan of him, too. He sounds like he was just a, a perfect gentleman, a gentleman and a wonderful man. And uh, what a wonderful experience that was for you to meet him. 
Uh, I thought you did a great job uh, telling us today and also writing about it on Facebook, which I encourage everyone to check out. And you're a wonderful writer, and it's awesome. it was awesome to speak to you today, Kay. Thank you for sharing your Thank memories you, of Charlie Mike. Watts. Thank you, Kay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very Thank you kindly. Very you bet. Bye-bye. That is uh, E.K. Fulton with her memories of Charlie Watts back in 1977. Wow. That was awesome. I love it.